Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. And welcome back after that hiatus while I finished my book on Hampton Court. I was hoping uh, to start with a big hello, but this is actually the fourth time I have recorded this intro because every time I said hello in an upbeat tone, I have a sneaking suspicion that I sounded like Mrs. Doubtfire after she sinks her face into a disguising cheesecake. On that note, this is the second season of this podcast, and I wanted to say that I have been truly blown away by the reception to single malt history. I really was quite nervous starting it. I've been so touched by listeners' support and the caliber of the guests we've had so far. That certainly is not slacking this autumn and winter, in which I'll be joined by more experts in their fields and New York Times best-selling authors. We'll have a sneak peek into some of the groundbreaking research into secrets hidden in code in Anne Boleyn's prayer book from the scholar who discovered them. And I myself will be sitting down to be grilled in a Q&A by a producer and interviewer from the glitzy world of television. Also coming up this season on Single Malt History by way of a shameless set of teaser plugs, I will be discussing the story of an African nobleman whose life took him to 18th century Belfast and the pinnacle of Georgian high society in England in his heroic quest to end the slave trade. How a right-wing aristocrat attempted to end sectarian divisions among the Northern Irish working class in 1921, the love affair between a dashing knight and a medieval king, and as history waltzes in its ever uneasy dance with pop culture, we try to cut in. You may have seen the distressing episode in season four of The Crown, dealing with the tragic institutionalization of the Queen's cousins. I'll have an episode this season on the true story of Nerissa and Catherine Bowes Lyon. And with the Game of Thrones prequel hurtling to our TV, iPads and multitudinous streaming devices as House of the Dragon, I'll be sitting down with historical novelist and GOT superfan Adrian Dillard to discuss the Targaryen dynasty and the brilliant ways in which George R.R. Martin believably reimagined a medieval monarchy for his blockbuster works of fiction. But first, today we go to the real thing, as we revisit a story in 12th century England to explore the forgotten life and legacy of Isabel of Gloucester, who some believe was the inspiration for the Game of Thrones character of Lady Sansa Stark, and who, either way, gives us a window into the duplicity and double-dealing of medieval politics and scandal. Isabel of Gloucester was the first woman since the conquest of 1066 to marry a future King of England, but who never became Queen herself. In many ways, as we shall see, Isabel's story is a sad reflection 
on the profoundly unfair lives that many medieval women were forced to lead, including women of the elite. Although they lived lives of greater physical comfort than the vast majority of the population, their physical bodies were so integral to the merger and acquisition of aristocratic estates that many daughters of the nobility were shuttled around depending on the ambitions of their male relatives, typically their fathers or brothers. Despite the fact, and I think this is uh, quite illustrative of the uh, position of these aristocratic women in the 12th century, despite the fact that Isabel was one of the greatest heiresses of her generation and that she married a future king, we are not even 100% sure that Isabel was her first name. In part, uh, I should say this was because of the multilingual nature of the English Empire at the time, in which French was spoken as much as English. And it's also because of the Middle Ages' decidedly promiscuous attitude towards spelling. But at various points, Isabel is referred to as Isabella, Aviza, Joan, Eleanor, Hawise, or Hawiza. She was born sometime around 1173, probably on one of her father's vast estates. It was a year of rebellion in which the elder sons of England's King Henry II openly rebelled against their father's authority to carve out political careers for themselves. Henry II's wife, the glamorous and determined Eleanor of Aquitaine, sided with her sons against her husband. Isabel's father, William Fitzrobert, Earl of Gloucester, was King Henry II's cousin, and he loyally sided with him to oppose the Queen and the princes. William Fitzrobert, Earl of Gloucester, was a grandson of the obscenely fertile King Henry I, who had ruled England from 1100 to 1135. Unlike King Henry II, however, the Earl of Gloucester did not descend from Henry I in the legitimate royal line. His his father, excuse me, um, his father Robert, had been one of Henry I's many bastards. I tripped there because I was trying to remember. Can I? I was. I, I'm nearly certain the number of Henry I's acknowledged illegitimate children was about two dozen. So, yes, I think Robert Robert Earl of Gloucester was one of the first uh, and one of the most prominent. But I do think, if memory serves, Henry I acknowledged about 24 illegitimate children. But anyway, um, this generous dose of royal blood, coupled with his father's loyalty to Henry II's mother during the terrible civil war of the 1140s, meant that William Fitzrobert of Gloucester stood high in the king's favour, and he had managed to expand his already considerable aristocratic holdings to become one of the great lords of the realm by the time of Isabel's birth. Through her father, the baby Isabel was not just related to the royal family, but also to some of the most influential families of the Anglo-Norman nobility. At this point, the uh, 
Duchy of Normandy and the Kingdom of England were still ruled by the same head of state. Isabel's uncle Roger was the Bishop of Worcester, her aunt Matilda was the Countess of Chester, and her late uncle Hammond had died a medieval hero's death in combat as a warrior at the 1159 Siege of Toulouse. Isabel's mother was born Lady Hawisa de Beaumont, daughter of the Earl of Leicester, who had served as England's de facto chief minister between 1155 and 1168. A highly influential political figure, as well as a generous benefactor to the church, her grandfather's service to King Henry II was yet another link between Isabel's family and the royals. Through her mother, Hawisa, Isabel was the niece of the current Earl of Leicester. Uh, Earl, at this point, was the highest title available to the English aristocracy. Today, it's the third of five. There are two more that were added later. Marquis, and then the highest title available today, which is Duke. And she was also the niece of the Countess of Huntingdon and Northampton, whom Isabel may have been named after. So we've established Isabel of Gloucester as being born into an extremely well-connected, wealthy and highly favoured aristocratic family with royal links. But medieval politics were treacherous and tricky, as I suppose, in fairness, all politics are. They were just a little bit more open about it in the 1100s. Despite her father, Lord Gloucester's loyalty to King Henry II during the Prince's Rebellion, for some reason, Henry II began to regard his cousin Gloucester with suspicion. Desperate to recover royal favour and to prove his loyalty to the regime, Lord Gloucester gifted Bristol Castle to the middle-aged monarch when Isabel was about two years old. Of course, it, it says something for Lord Gloucester's astronomical wealth that he was able to part with a castle of that size while remaining one of the most affluent men in the empire. The gesture obviously worked because a few years later, Isabel's father was given the honour of accompanying his king on his long journey to arbitrate a dispute between the kings of Navarre and Castile. Navarre, as an independent kingdom, well, neither actually Navarre or Castile exist today as independent kingdoms. Most people will know that Castile is now part of uh, the Kingdom of Spain. Navarre, parts of it are in the Kingdom of Spain, parts of it are in France. It was located on the far western um, seaboard and very far down to the south of what is now France, with little bits being in what is Spain. So that gives you an idea of where they were heading and where Navarre was. There is some evidence, though, that Lord Gloucester fell out of favour again, either during that trip or shortly afterwards, and he was deliberately detained on Henry II's orders when the princes once again rebelled against their father. Whether this uh, lack of 
trust in Lord Gloucester was because of kingly paranoia. I mean, well, after all, if his sons had betrayed him, why couldn't a cousin? Or because Lord Gloucester had done something to justify the king's suspicions, it is hard to say with the fairly limited evidence we have left to us. We also know very little about Isabel's childhood or her relationship with her parents, but it is unfortunately safe to hazard the guess that she would have come as a disappointment to them, given 12th century attitudes to gender and the legal implications of that. Isabel's only brother, Robert, had died before she was born, and her mother uh, did not have any more sons. And so without a male heir to inherit his land and titles, Lord Gloucester had negotiated a deal with the king, which would see all of the Gloucester's substantial wealth devolved to the monarchy once the Earl passed away, but it would only do so if it simultaneously stayed in the family thanks to a marriage, which was a condition of the Earl's bequest. Henry II's youngest, and for reasons passing understanding, favourite son was Prince John, later enshrined as a villain in the Robin Hood legends or as the thumb-sucking petulant lion if you're a Disney fan. With the eldest son due to inherit the king's crowns in England and Normandy, or I suppose crown in England, coronet in Normandy, the second son Richard set to inherit Queen Eleanor's ancestral duchy in the Aquitaine, and the third son, Geoffrey, married off to the heiress to the Duchy of Brittany. King Henry was anxious to provide a suitable inheritance for his youngest son, John, who was already being cruelly nicknamed John Lackland by sniggering courtiers. This proposed Gloucester inheritance was perfect because it would turn Prince John into a great magnate in his own right. The agreement hammered out between the King and the Earl of Gloucester, therefore prepared the way for Prince John to inherit everything when the Earl died in return for marrying one of Lord Gloucester's three daughters, Mabel, Alice or Isabel. Why Isabel was picked over her sisters to marry Prince John is anybody's guess, but John, uh, we just don't know, really. Um, I'll explain in a minute why I think it possibly indicates that she was the eldest, but again, it's unclear. We do know that John and Isabel were engaged when Isabel was only about three or four years old. Documentation from this time in English history is often tricky, ambiguous or patchwork, but it seems possible to the point of probable that Lady Isabel was the eldest of the three Gloucester sisters. Her father, the Earl, died when she was about 10 years old, leaving the lion's share of the Gloucester inheritance to his de facto male heir, Prince John. Of Isabel's sisters, Lady Mabel later married a member of the de Montfort family, and Lady Alice married the Earl of Hartford. Worn out by work and heartbreak, King Henry II died in July 1189. 
at which point his son Richard ascended the throne to go down in royal legend as King Richard the Lionheart. In the time since Isabel's father died, two of King Henry's other sons, the princes Henry and Geoffrey, had also died, meaning that in 1189 the only two left were now King Richard and Isabel's husband-to-be, Prince John. If King Richard did not produce a son, then there was a very good chance that Prince John would be the next King of England. However, John lived with a poisonous and uh, discombobulating for him fear that he might be passed over in favour of his nephew Arthur, son of his late brother Geoffrey. It was vital, therefore, from John's perspective that he locked down his position as a great power player so that when the time came, he would have the connections and the resources necessary to defeat his nephew's claim to the throne. With this goal in mind, Prince John married Lady Isabel in a hasty ceremony at Marlborough Castle on the 29th of August, 1189. He was 22, she was about 16 or 17. The newlyweds shared a common great-grandfather in the form of the aforementioned King Henry I, and as such they were second cousins, which put them within the prohibited degrees of affinity meaning they were too closely related to be married without a special dispensation from the church, but Prince John hadn't applied for one. The Archbishop of Canterbury was not pleased, and he demanded that John appear before an ecclesiastical court to justify him. Prince John, who had little to no respect for the church, refused. The Pope, Clement III, was also less than thrilled. But the church's attempt to force John to recant for not going through the proper channels for the wedding petered out when the Archbishop of Canterbury died before any ecclesiastical court could convene. The closest comparison I could make today in terms of why this made people suspicious, I've mentioned uh, Clement III and the Archbishop obviously objecting from a moral perspective. But the dispensation, second cousins is not an, such an incredibly close relationship that there would have been problems in getting the paperwork, the dispensation from the Vatican, to the best of my knowledge, actually, I think. Maybe if I'm incorrect, a listener can um, let me know. I think under British law today, second cousins can can marry. I'm nearly certain. Uh, but that might just have been something that's that, <laughs> that I'm completely wrong about. So uh, do let me know if um, if that's correct. But the comparison that I would make today would be if someone didn't do the right paperwork for a wedding. If someone knew that you had to sign something at the registry office or at the church or the synagogue or, or the uh, wedding venue, wherever it may be, if someone didn't apply for the proper license or if they didn't do one of those things that you're expected to do, and they knew they, they were well aware and it was pointed out to them that they hadn't done it and they still didn't do it, 
you would be suspicious as to why they weren't making this marriage fully uh, legally binding. And so that brings us on to the question of what kind of man had Isabel married? Prince John has been described as cruel, miserly, extortionate, duplicitous, treacherous, mendacious, suspicious, secretive, paranoid, and lecherous. And that's by one of his most recent biographers. Unfortunately, there's really very little to query in that assessment. To me, Prince John, King John as he became, does seem to have been an unrelentingly awful human being who used and discarded everyone around him. There are other biographers, I believe, uh, who, in fairness, consider that this opinion is much too harsh and that our views of John have been coloured by the fact that most histories at the time were written by monks who were bound to be critical since John himself was so critical of the church as mentioned. There's some truth in that caveat, but... It's also true of a previous King of England, William II, and yet much can be found to say in his favour despite the overt monastic bias. I, I, I don't think that there are enough extenuating anecdotes or evidence in the case of King John. I think there's really far too many of him being truly awful for them all to be dismissed as bias. And John's treatment of Isabel, I would argue, is typical of his calculated selfishness. Curiously, for a man who had ignored or bullied so many of his other children, the late King Henry II had adored John and done everything in his power to give him the kind of royal career that he simply was not temperament equipped for. The plans to make him the next Earl of Gloucester through marriage to Lady Isabel had been one major stage of that plan. Henry had also managed to make John Count of Mortain in Normandy, but he had been thwarted twice in giving John a kingdom of his own. In 1183, the same year as Isabel's father, Lord Gloucester, died, Henry II had wanted to make John the next ruler of the Aquitaine. This was vehemently opposed by both John's brother, Prince Richard, who knew the Aquitaine well, and by John's own mother, Queen Eleanor, who was the Aquitaine's hereditary ruler. Two years later, with the first English military intervention in Ireland rapidly drawing to what was then a presumed conclusion, Henry had toyed with the idea of making John king of a semi-independent or independent Ireland. It's of course fascinating to conjecture what might have happened had Henry II got his way with the Irish plan in 1185 to make John the first king of a unified independent Ireland. Isabel of Gloucester might have been its first queen. Preparations were already underway when John was given the intended to be interim title Lord of Ireland and sent over to Ireland with 300 knights. His visit to Ireland was an unmitigated disaster. Not for the last time in Irish history, the arriving English authority managed to annoy everyone. John offended the Gaelic aristocracy by laughing at their long beards, their language and their clothes. 
He also simultaneously ticked off the new Anglo-Norman warrior settlers by interfering in a very delicate political situation. He tried to play both types of aristocracy off against one another. He riled the English Viceroy, the Lord of Meath, by blaming everything that went wrong on him. And he generally managed to irritate or outrage everybody around him. No one in Ireland can have been too devastated when Pope Lucius III refused to condone Henry II's scheme to make John the new King of Ireland. For most of Isabel's early married life, she was thus technically the second lady in the Kingdom of England. Pride of place still went to, at this point, her seemingly immortal mother-in-law, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, But with King Richard's queen, Berengaria, having joined him on crusade, Isabel, as wife to the heir presumptive to the English throne, was the highest ranking woman in England after the Dowager Queen. Yet, despite this exalted status, Isabel remains curiously out of focus, almost an ignored presence in the documentation from the 1190s. She is mentioned in almost none of the surviving sources, and John perhaps had no interest in promoting his wife's presence at court. And as mentioned, there is the quite sinister possibility that he had deliberately married Isabel without waiting for a dispensation from the church, because it had already been his long-term plan to get his hands on Isabel's inheritance, to then ditch her for a more advantageous marriage once or if he became king. After all, throughout the Middle Ages, the papacy had proved itself to have the supple flexibility of a practised gymnast when it came to the sacrament of marriage. Until Clement VII unexpectedly dug his heels in about Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon's marriage in the 1530s, The Vatican had facilitated hundreds of canonically questionable marriages across Western Europe. There's no reason to suppose that Clement III would not have been similarly reasonable for John and Isabel if he had been properly petitioned. And so viewed in this context, it seems quite clear that John intended to leave a question mark over the legality of his marriage to Isabel which he could then exploit as and when he wanted. Further signs that this was his ultimate plan appeared four years into the marriage, when John apparently considered divorcing Isabel to marry a younger sister of the King of France. At that time, John was currently plotting with the French to exploit his brother King Richard's long absence from England on crusade, and a marriage with Princess Elise would have further united John with the French royal family. Isabel's position as a member of the English royal family was probably only saved when King Richard the Lionheart unexpectedly returned to England with his mother Eleanor's help and publicly humiliated his little brother John by referring to his treasonous schemes as nothing more than the actions of a confused child. Still, All of John's land and revenue was temporarily taken from him as punishment, with the exception of Ireland. So Isabel remained Lady of Ireland by marriage and Countess of Gloucester by right of birth. But John's chance to 
part from Isabel, or at least end the marriage, came in April 1199 when King Richard was killed on military campaign in France. After a feverish scramble, John solidified his hold on the English throne at his nephew Arthur's expense. He captured him, he imprisoned them, and there is a hard-to-dispel eyewitness testimony, um, certainly written by someone who lived in Arthur's last known prison, I suppose you would say, uh, that John actually killed his nephew with his own bare hands. That can't be proved or disproved. We do know for certain that Arthur was killed and that John had already been successful in establishing establishing, excuse me, himself in Arthur's expense, and that he thus commenced his ultimately disastrous 17-year reign. That sentence really got away from me. I did not trip lightly over those words. One of the first things to go was Isabel, who, having been denied the crown of Ireland by the actions of the Pope, was now denied the crown of England by the actions of her husband. John consulted, in the world's largest quotation marks, with three compliant Norman bishops who agreed with him that Shockingly, his marriage to Isabel had never been legal in the eyes of the church because they hadn't applied for the proper dispensation, if only someone had told them. You know, like the Archbishop of Canterbury. The new Pope, Innocent III, later known as Innocent the Great, was thoroughly unamused that after a decade of marriage in defiance of the church, the new King of England had all of a sudden decided to express his moral qualms at a moment of maximum material advantage to do so. Isabel, either as the result of bullying or bribery, did not contest her husband's petition, and with that, the Pope could do nothing to stop the annulment. By the end of August, Isabel of Gloucester was no longer King John's wife. But John would not let Isabel go, because if he did, he let her land go with her, and that was something he certainly did not want to do. Since Isabel was technically an unwed aristocratic female orphan, it was the monarchy's job to find a protector for her. Quite incredibly, King John therefore designated his ex-wife as his new ward. And as Isabel's legal guardian, and let's bear in mind she was 26, John would be able to continue managing and profiting from her estates on behalf of his ward. So Isabel continued to live under John's care, if we can call it that. He gave her a home, and decided how much money she would receive from her own estates. He then added um, the humiliation and scandal of his new wife. The next queen was initially expected to be a daughter of King Sancho I of Portugal, most probably the Infanta Sancha. Infanta being the traditional Portuguese and Spanish designation for a princess. This pious Portuguese Infanta was spared being uh, King John's consort when diplomatic circumstances closer to home 
forced him to abandon the proposed match. Uh, Sancha joined a convent and centuries later she was beatified by the Catholic faith along with her elder sister Teresa. Um, Beatification entitles a particularly holy person to the prefix of blessed in front of their name. It is, um, in slightly reductive terms, the best way to describe being beatified is that it's one step below being canonized as a saint. But uh, back to the 12th century, the consequences and conspiracies and tensions that shifted focus in the short term away from Sancha of Portugal was a risk that King John perceived to the English Empire in France. Uh, And just by way, uh, perhaps, of a um, warning is the right word, but, but just for listeners who might not... Uh, be comfortable with this next topic of conversation. I will be discussing sexual assault and the uh, historical theory that King John committed it. Um, And I just thought I would let people know before I I carry on with that. King John was determined to stop an alliance between two great aristocratic families, the House of Lusignan and the House of Angoulême, which if they combined, as they were uh, planning to, would seriously threaten his rule over his French territories. And so John resorted to kidnapping and quite possibly sexual assault. The young daughter of the Count of Angoulême, another Isabel, was betrothed to Hugh de Lusignan. But Isabel, the alternative Isabels, um, Isabel of Angoulême and Hugh de Lusignan's marriage had not yet taken place because Isabel of Angoulême was below the canonical age of consent, which at that point was 12 years old. Uh, Heedless to such uh, sexual and moral concerns, John kidnapped Isabel of Angoulême before she could marry Hugh, and he married her himself. The resultant outrage throughout the empire, and outside of it as well, was enormous. Having horrified most of his contemporaries with the grotesque circumstances of his second marriage, King John then continued to raise more eyebrows by requiring his first wife, Isabel, to take care of his second wife, Isabel. After the divorce, Isabel of Gloucester had been given her own household in Winchester, 70 miles outside London, and an annual allowance of £80 per year. That was a generous allowance, but Isabel of Gloucester was then ordered to use at least part of it to act as a chaperone to her own replacement. And um, you may remember from, uh, well, a minute ago, my uh, caveat about John's possible sexual assault of Isabel of Angoulême. And uh, that has been questioned by quite a number of historians who cite the king's decision to immediately entrust his second wife into the care of his first as indicative that that there had that they lived apart and that therefore the chances that he had um assaulted her are inaccurate it is of course to be hoped that this was what happened to isabella of angoulême both sides of the debate remain the new queen was only brought to live at court with king john half a decade after she was kidnapped And when she fell pregnant six years later, Isabel of Gloucester had well and truly ceased to be useful to her ex-husband. 
She and her servants were sent to Dorset, to a smaller castle where her allowance was cut back to £50 per annum. There, Isabel of Gloucester languished in obscurity while she entered her thirties, which were generally considered too old to remarry and produce children by the standards of her era. Finally, in 1214, 15 years after her first marriage had ended, King John found a replacement husband for his wife turned ward. As he lurched from crisis to crisis, King John needed money, and he pressured his supporter, the Earl of Essex, into parting with an enormous sum of 20,000 marks in order to secure Isabel of Gloucester's hand in marriage. As her legal guardian, King John had the final say. Isabel was about 37 years old by this stage. Expanding his estates through their marriage was certainly the motivating factor for Lord Essex's proposal, as well as promises of favour from a grateful King John. But even here, the king conspired to cheat his ex-wife. After she became the new Countess of Essex, John refused to sign over Isabel's most valuable manor at Bristol, which was a major foundation of her estate's income. By this stage, King John's unpopularity had plunged the English monarchy into an adhere of respectability. The landowning classes and the church hierarchy, the two traditional pillars of monarchical rule, had turned against it. And they were so enraged by King John's political and particularly financial extortions that they wanted to formally codify their rights in relation to the crowns. The resultant document, Magna Carta, was to be seen with hindsight as a foundation of future British democracy by establishing explicitly the concept of a contract between government and governed. At the time, few were aware of the Great Charter's significance. It had been preceded by an en masse aristocratic rebellion against King John's rule. Not surprisingly, Isabel and her new husband, Lord Essex, sided with the rebels, which I have to say I rather like. What was Isabel's second husband turned unlikely rebel like? Well, uh, some listeners may know my weakness for any kind of magnificently overwrought medieval name, and so I do enjoy the magnificent name of Geoffrey Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex. Geoffrey Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville was about 18 years younger than Isabel of Gloucester, and they seem to have been relatively happy together. The couple seemed to have been particularly outraged by the king's refusal to hand over Bristol to them at the time of their marriage, as expected. This was exactly uh, the kind of overstepping of the law that the rebellion was trying to stop in their king, and so it's unsurprising that the Essexes supported the uprising. I don't think it's too fanciful or, or too much of a conjecture that, um, that there were personal motivations behind Isabel's support for the rebellion as well. Um, perhaps, who knows, uh, uh, this would be more the terrain of a novelist, but perhaps Isabel was able to take some pleasure in the humiliating ceremony at Runnymede where John was forced to sign Magna Carta in front of the triumphant rebels. I certainly hope so, but again documentation is lacking. A year later, after only two years as a married woman with Geoffrey Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville, Isabel became a widow when Geoffrey was killed in a jousting tournament. Eight months later, King John died in Nottinghamshire at the age of 49. 
His body was taken to the Cathedral of Christ in the Blessed Mary the Virgin of Worcester, where Isabel's late uncle had once held sway as bishop. King John was succeeded on the throne by his nine-year-old son from his second marriage, who became King Henry III. Legend has it he was so physically small at his coronation that he had to be crowned with a lighter piece from his mother's jewellery collection. After a decent mourning period following Geoffrey's jousting accident, Isabel of Gloucester married again. From this, we might surmise that left to her own devices, she would have followed her inclination into matrimony long ago if only King John hadn't kept her trapped for years in the purgatory of wardship. Then again, that might be a romantic projection or supposition. Isabel of Gloucester's decision to marry for the third time in 1217 may have been motivated by a prudent desire by a wealthy aristocrat to find herself a male protector in an uncertain political and military environment. Frustratingly, we will never know. But we do know that the uh, circumstances of the succession to the throne of a child did ultimately benefit her new alliance. Isabel's third husband was Hubert de Burr, the future Earl of Kent, and a man who had just been made Chief Justiciar of England. It was a job very roughly comparable to that of a present-day Prime Minister or Chief Minister, and it was the post that Isabel's late grandfather had held under Henry II. Hubert de Burr was older than Isabel, and he had established a reputation for military bravery whilst on crusade with King Richard the Lionheart. He also already had two sons from his first marriage to the late Lady Beatrice de Warren, about 57 or 58 at the time he married Isabel of Gloucester, who was then about 50, Hubert and Isabel were of a similar age, class and wealth. With Henry III being so young and his widowed French mother excluded from politics by his guardians, Isabel of Gloucester found herself for the second time in her life married to one of the de facto rulers of England and Ireland. Whether Isabel's marriage to Hubert would have proved happy in the long run is another and the last unknown of her life. Isabel fell ill shortly after the wedding and she died on the 14th of October 1217, four years, excuse me, four days to a year since the death of her first husband. She was buried in Kent, her third husband's home county, in the great cathedral at Canterbury, which was rapidly becoming one of the largest pilgrimage sites in Europe because it housed the bones of the martyred St Thomas Becket. Hubert outlived Isabel by a quarter of a century, dying in his 80s and holding on to his post as Chief Justiciar until 1232. He subsequently married a Scottish princess called Margaret, by whom he had a daughter in his old age. Isabel, Lady of Ireland, Countess of Gloucester, Essex and Kent, has lain in Canterbury Cathedral for the last eight centuries. The descendant and wife of kings, Isabel's great wealth and royal ancestry ironically reduced her to a pawn shunted around on a political chessboard to suit other people's agenda. Isabel of Gloucester's entire adult life was stolen from her by the man she was engaged to at the age of three. When she married John, he was the technical ruler of Ireland. And because of his brother's absence on crusade, he was also one of the most influential men in England. Her third husband, Hubert de Burr, wielded similar authority during the youth of King Henry III. And yet, for all her proximity to power, 
we know almost nothing about Isabel. We don't know what this person looked like, what her interests were, how she felt at certain moments in her life, whom she really loved and what she wanted from life. Of all the women who married into the British royal families, none remains more posthumously silent nor more enigmatic than Isabel of Gloucester. Hopefully, this podcast episode shines a little bit of attention on her story. And if you're interested in more, I can recommend Queen's Consort by Lisa Hilton and Lionheart and Lackland by Frank McLean. I'd like to thank you for your time. I hope you and yours have a safe week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review, share, etc. If you enjoyed this episode and please, as always, take care.